Days. Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek. 1212 I'm the Lizard King! I can do anything! Jim Morrison. The God of Rock. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with the lyric, Girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say instead, Girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? Girl, we couldn't get much higher. I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. Do you hear them out there? Do you they want now? You ever tried drinking blood? Mr. Morrison, you've gone too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What you gonna do for Act 3? Go on! Kill me! Come on, give me some death! Let's just say I was testing the bounds of reality. And now, rest from Los Angeles, California, the door! Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Hey everybody, this is Mark Farner, the founding member of Grand Funk Railroad, and I'm listening to Nostalgic Radio in Cars, where they'll knock you alive. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past 600 and some odd shows, you can Google NostalgicRadioandCars.com, where you can tune in to our archive page. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Pretty good. We've got a very, very, very exciting show tonight. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. So, But let me give you a little rehash of what we did this past weekend. We went to the Sun and Fun and uh, over in Lakeland, and we watched a lot of airplanes go up and down. As and heard here on the Tantalk Network. As heard here on the Tantalk Radio Network, absolutely. So uh, what was really cool is the Blue Angels. They did a spectacular showing like they always did. But a lot of really cool uh, jets, um, just regular airplanes, all kinds of stuff. I'm not really an aviation guy, so I don't really know a lot about airplanes. 
I'm still marveled at the fact they actually get off the ground and land. I'm nervous every time I fly, but... Uh, oh, we could have Bill tell us about that. Yeah, Bill, yeah, because he's a pilot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and his dad actually built an airport back in the mm-hmm. day up in upstate New York. So a big shout-out to uh, Only in Only America. America. My pillow. Promo code Bill. Yeah. <laughs> a radio show about politics just a few minutes before our show. At any rate, and uh, so that was fun. Now, what's coming up? Well, obviously, if you want to find out where all the car shows are, what's going on, check out flacarshows.com. But this weekend, Saturday, is two events that... Uh, I'm not sure if I can do both of them, but I'm definitely doing one of them. Okay, so in Jupiter, Florida, at the parky down there, the park, Jupiter Park, is that what it is, Bobby? Jupiter Park, something like that? Anyway, uh, is Wheels Across the Pond. Now, I went to that last year. Originally was a British, uh, British, a British car show, um, all British, but and there was probably, I'm going to say, probably four or 500 cars, but now it is um, basically open to all European cars across the pond, of course. That means they call that little piece of water, little mass of water between the United States and uh, the European continent, they call that a pond. And um, Or could it be the British, Canal, the British Channel? I'm not sure. But anyway, so we have French cars, we have German cars, we have Italian cars, we have Swedish cars, even Czechoslovakian cars, even Dutch cars, as in the Duff, for my Dutch friends out there. As they always say, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, right? <laughs> but anyway. And we try to be much here. And we try to be much. So we talk yeah. about Dutch. And we'll drink to a yingling. All right? that, that goes out to my friend Hank and Pete and George. Uh, so anyway. Um, and then, of course, this weekend. Well, anyway, so they have all these cool cars there. So it's a, it's a must-attend show. And they have a lot of vintage stuff and a lot of contemporary stuff. So it's really cool. It's a very great show and a very good show. Great show, great show, great show, something like that. Anyway, and then, really of course. Really good show tonight. Really, a, really big, a really good show, big show tonight. tonight. Really big, big, big show tonight. Well, I can't do an Ed Sullivan thing, but you guys get the message. Anyway, um, and then, of course, in Sarasota, which is this week. Weekend at the is it called University Town Center? Is that what it is down there? UTC. Yes. Okay. Off sounds right. Huh? Sounds right. Sounds right. Something like that. Anyway, so they have a very very big cars and coffee every second Saturday of the month. So now that's within you know an hour and a half driving distance from you know beautiful Pinellas County, the Sun Coast, right? And uh, so that uh, is pretty amazing. And, you know, you would be amazed at the cars that are in Sarasota. I mean, it ranges from, you know, your basic Ford Mustang to Speedtail McLarens or vintage Ferraris and vintage Porsches and brand-new GT3 RS Porsches and Aston Martins and just everything in between. So it's a pretty cool show. You know, a lot of Corvettes, a lot of muscle cars, Chevelles, Torinos, Shelbys, Bosses, Camaros, all that good stuff. Roadrunners, Super Bs, Challengers, Cudas, and the list goes on, and the list goes on. And uh, so that's this weekend. And, of course, next weekend is two things going on, and one is the Barrett-Jackson auction down in West Palm Beach, and also the Florida Toe Show. Yes. Now, that's Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I think that's what it, You know, it's odd because used, a lot of times they used to have all these events on Sundays as well. But anyway, so now we're just doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday instead of Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Anyway, on that note, now you know what's going on this weekend. But I think it's time for Bobby to fire up the stereo. Think and, it's that time? Yeah, I think it's that time. And then we're going to go ahead and call yeah. and get our guests on. We have a very, very special guest on. And okay. uh, this will be a very, very, very interesting and entertaining and informative interview. I'm looking forward to this. You tune into Nostalgic Renewing Cars, and we're going to play a little Buffalo Springfield. Mr. Soul. That's the word. That's the word I was thinking of. Okay, hey, you tune into Nostalgic Renewing Cars. Don't touch that doll. We will be right back. For the thought that I popped at my head is the event of the season. White crowds, just a trace of my
Okay, we're back and you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm delighted to welcome my next very special guest. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. This gentleman's got 800 photographs to his credit, 200 album covers. He's a uh, musician himself, uh, kind of a folk musician, you know, but he plays a lot of other stuff as well. But uh, his big claim to fame is, is he was around back in the good old days, in the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s, when we had some of the most, well, particularly the 60s and 70s, when we had some of the greatest rock and roll music, and he has had the the great distinction and honor of working with some of these amazing and legendary bands like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Frank Zappa, The Doors, Joni Mitchell, The Stones, and, and Loving Spoonful, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Henry Diltz. Good evening, Henry. How are you? Hey, Robert. I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> so that was quite a build-up. <laughs> no, but well, I mean, you just—you yeah. are legendary. I mean, you know, when I was reading up on you, I mean, think about this: Woodstock, the official photographer for Woodstock, Monterey, and Miami Pop Festivals. You know, that's that's uh, a yeah. that's a pretty big <laughs> title. I mean, you got to be proud of yourself there. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess so. I, you know, when when people make a fuss, I say, look, you know, you really like the people I photographed. I mean, why not? Neil Young, the Eagles, Joni Mitchell, you know. CSN. So, you know, it's, 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 it's those groups that I photographed that make me famous. Not so much, but I, I mean, right, I was there. I did happen to be there, and I'm glad of that. I'm glad I could serve as the guy who witnessed this stuff and, and took a picture of it. But first of all, I did it because it was fun. I was hanging out with my friends. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't even thinking I was a, a professional photographer. I was just a you know, a fellow musician with a camera. And I'm curious about people. I like to watch people, and I wonder about people, and I like to quietly take pictures of them when they don't know I am. Well, well, it's interesting because I was listening to some of the interviews, and you made a comment. It says, yeah, I like to take pictures of cows, trucks, Fire hydrants yeah. and Mickey yeah, Mouse, yeah. you know. But when you yeah. said cars and trucks, you said because they take up a lot of camera space, you know, or a lot of film because, space. No, because you know why? why? Because they fill the frame. That's it. Well, when you look through a camera, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rectangle, right, going right. from left to right. And something like a cow or a pickup truck is a rectangular thing, and you can film. You can you can take a photo and compose it really tightly. Around that, you know, with not with not a lot of space around it, and it fills the frame, and it makes a really really nice graphic picture, graphic design. The thing about Mickey Mouse is, yeah, I there's about fifty different categories that I look for when I'm out, especially in a new town or a new country, and it's like you know fire hydrants. I mean, like like I said, trucks. Uh, I like I like um, manhole covers because they're wildly different. They're, they're in color in Kyoto, Japan. Those manhole covers are painted in colors. Blue sky, green trees, beautiful. So these are things I notice as I travel, you know. I mean, I mean, I like to photograph animals and insects, you know, and birds and flowers. And, and there's just many things, you know. I like signs. I like tattoos. I like T-shirts. I like graffiti. I mean, all of those things are, are things that I... Photograph. And Mickey Mouse, too. One day, someone had a, 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 a volleyball, not a volleyball, but a soccer ball. And it was down by their feet, and I had a big Mickey Mouse looking up. And I took a picture of it, and then I would show it in my slideshows that I used to do in the 60s with my, my stoned hippie friends. <laughs> and then if you find a second and a third Mickey Mouse, now you've got a Mickey Mouse, you know, a category, right? Yeah. Three or more are the same thing, and you've got a category going. So, you know, aside from musicians, that was the other half of what I did. Well, all right, let's start from your humble beginnings. You're from the Midwest. You're from Kansas, correct? Uh, no, Missouri. I was oh, born Missouri. in Kansas City, Missouri. And, oh. you know, my, my mom and dad were... T- my dad was a TWA pilot. My mom was a TWA stewardess. 
Really? And I was born, yeah, like in the middle 30s. I was born in 38. And I was born in a, in a hub city for TWA, which was Kansas City. But I only lived there a few months. I mean, I left there as a baby. Okay, and well. Then, then I, yeah. Go ahead. Don't know. Well, I mean, then as, as a young child, I lived in New York, Great Neck, New York, on Long Island. And then, um, you know, I mean, it's funny that, you know, I had a stepfather. My father died in World War II in the Army Air Corps. So I had a stepfather who was in the State Department. And I moved to Tokyo, Japan when I was nine years old and spent five years there. And then I was a teenager in Bangkok, Thailand for two years. And then I went to college in Munich, Germany. Um, and then it was after that that I went to University of Hawaii. Okay. So I, I did a lot of a lot of stuff before I ever picked up a camera. You know, well, I saw a lot of the world anyway. Well, no, that's and, good. Uh, yeah. Well, being it was fun. Uh, having, tr well, I was going to say, you know, Missouri, the show me state, and by coincidence, you're a photographer, so there's this connection there. But, but the traveling, the traveling when you were younger as a child, what was that like for you? And then li living in different cultures. Yeah, magic, really magic. I mean, I, I, I feel, you know, like a quarter Japanese because my <laughs> formative years, I was growing up there, you know, and it was all around me for five years. Beautiful Japanese people. And their culture and their attitude towards each other, and, and I, I, I feel that in my in my, you know, in my loins. No, I feel that <laughs> inside. You know, not in my loins. I just that's silly. Uh, uh, Thailand was more in my loins, I guess. Uh, but okay. Tokyo, Tokyo, <laughs> I was in, I was in elementary school. You know. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, but it made me appreciate people. I mean, I'm. I, I really, I'm amazed by people. I mean, I think everyone is interesting, you know, and, 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 and by the country, they're interesting. Uh, all kinds of people and the various ways we go about living this life, you know, that's always been something that interests me. So when you were living, let's say, in, 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 the, in the Far East there, okay, and uh -huh. then as opposed to going all the way over to Germany, which is Western civilization, did you, yeah. as a child, and when you're going through you know, your adolescent years, you know, as a child, going through school, then obviously uh, high school, middle school, did you assimilate, or were you, because I think, did I understand you correctly, your father was in the service? Your stepfather? State, State Department. Oh, State Department, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. did you go to civilian schools or did you go to uh, U.S. schools? No. Um, yeah, I on always, always went to U.S. schools, of course, because you know because I didn't speak Japanese, and you know there were army bases and air force bases. So, I went to a big, uh, you know, an elementary school on a on an army housing uh, place, which which had you know three hundred um, army brats in it, you know, mm -hmm. and so most of my friends were military dependence in, in every place that I lived. Um, so you meet you meet a great deal of people. I mean, think of it. Every every school I go to, I make a whole group of karmic best friends. You know, and then you move away in a couple of years, you never see them again. But they're in your thoughts and memories. It's part of you, you know. Because I think we're, you know, we are sort of a part of everybody that we meet. This is true. This is true. This it is true. It rubs off on you. You learn something. You see something. I mean, it's fascinating to me. So when did but, your uh, when mm. when did your fascination with um, photography take place? In other words, was it when you were at a younger age, or was it? No, no, no. I can tell you exactly because after, when I went, I went to Hawaii, went to University of Hawaii, and then I, I started singing in a coffee house. Okay. Green Sweets Coffee House. And then, and for like, yeah, three or four years, I would play the banjo and sing folk song. And you'd get duos and trios and quartets together, and you play here and there. We finally formed a group, moved to L.A., and recorded for Warner Brothers. We were called the Modern Folk Quartet. And about the fifth year that we were traveling back and forth across the country doing college concerts, because folk music was the big music of the day. And every college had folk concerts and stuff, and we would travel all around. One morning, leaving the University of Michigan, we saw a little secondhand store just by the road, and we said, hey, we got to stop in there. You know, we always love to look for junk we don't need, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it, 
as we and we, as we walk in the door, the one Cyrus Farriar, uh, the older guy in the group, was in front of me, and there was a table of used cameras right inside the door, like twenty bucks. And he reached down and grabbed one and said, "Oh, a camera! I need one." And I was behind him, and without even thinking about it, I just said, "Oh, yeah, why not? You know, me too." I hadn't been thinking about getting a camera. I hadn't been jonesing to take photos. I never, it never occurred to me, you know. And I just picked one up without even thinking about it. Then we photographed each other on the way back to L.A. for two or three weeks on the road, developed the film, and it was slide film. I had no idea what the pictures would even look like. But they were little transparencies, little slides. And I said, well, let's have a slideshow. And invited all of my friends, my, you know, hippie karmic friends. Huh. And we sat in the living room and, you know, drank wine and smoked pot and listened to the, you know, listened to music. And I flashed these pictures on the wall and it totally blew my mind. So that was the moment when I said, wow. I mean, look at these pictures are 10 feet wide, glowing in the dark on the wall. Right. And I, I said, it's just like being there. I've got to do more of these so I can have more slideshows with my friends. And that is exactly, you know, how it happened. And then I just kept photographing all my, my folk music friends in Laurel Canyon. And uh, one by one, they became famous. And I had all these pictures, you know. Do you remember the camera that you bought, your very first camera? Do you remember what it yeah, was? It was, a, it was a Japanese camera. Okay. I'm not sure... You know, it was a little Japanese camera, and it was kind of broken, but it worked. Uh-huh. And then I got a Pentax right away. Okay. Within a few months, I got a Pentax. Then someone stole my whole bag of Pentax cameras from the, the back seat of my Volkswagen when I went into Hollywood Cleaners one day. And a friend loaned me a Nikon. And I thought, oh, man, this is really a great camera. It doesn't, uh, it, it, it doesn't break as easy. My Nikon, when I worked on the Monkees TV show, they would hit against the light stands in the, in the TV studio, and they just broke easily. They weren't real sturdy. But the Nikon was like a tank. So I switched to Nikon, and that's what I used for like 30 years, 40 years. Okay, let's. Uh, I, I we skipped one little section. So when you when you tr- left, you went. To, you said you went to college in, in Munich, Germany. So where in Munich, Germany? Yeah. Where in which university was it? Was it a? Um, no, I tell you, it was the University of Maryland, overseas okay. branch. University of Maryland has has classes all over the world for uh, night classes for for people in the army and the services. And so there were so many dependent college-age kids in Europe that they opened up a campus in the daytime for, you know, the sons and daughters of military people and, and, and State Department, you know, embassy people. So, so it was great. There was 100 boys and 100 girls. What were we the... Well, skiing in Austria, and I had a great time. <laughs> oh, skiing in Austria. Okay, well, I can relate to that. Yeah. Kitzbühel and places like that, you know? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I well, love now, Munich. How long were you in your, Germany? Uh, I was there a couple years, and I happened to take Psychology 101. And there was a the professor who was just so great that it just made me just fall in love with it. I think I have, I said before, I have an innate curiosity about people. Uh-huh. And it, it kind of, you know, studying psychology gave me some answers about why people act and think the way they do. And so... I, I kind of, I went to University of Hawaii to, to finish my psychology classes. Actually, in between Munich and Hawaii, I happened to go to West Point for a year. Okay. <laughs> a West Point cadet. Yeah, because my father died in World War II, I automatically could apply for the test, and I've got a good grade, and they accepted me. And I wasn't going to go because that wasn't in my plans. But everybody kept saying, congratulations, my boy. What a rare opportunity. So I went to West Point, you know, and I loved it. I, I loved the, the West Point part of it. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a, 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 an engineering student. And West Point is like a lot of math, a lot of engineering, stuff like that. So I contrived to leave after a year. And, and I thought, well, where can I go that's far away? 
and that will accept my credit. So I, I picked Hawaii and studied psychology there for a couple more years. And then, as I said, became a folk singer. So when you picked, you, your, your, the instrument of choice was a banjo. Yeah. Why was it a banjo as opposed to, let's say, like a guitar? <laughs> because when I went to West Point, uh, I belonged to the Columbia Record Club, and I would get these Pete Seeger records. And it was something about the syncopated beat of the banjo that just stuck in my head. Uh-huh. I wanted to play a banjo so bad. I mean, I, I knew a few chords on the guitar, you know, but I, was, I wasn't anywhere like a lead guitar. I could play a few folk chords. But I loved that syncopated feeling of the banjo, and it has a drone note that's just like a, like a bagpipe, sort of. Uh-huh. It just got in me, you know. And I left West Point, bought a banjo, and moved to Hawaii. And learned to play it and became a, you know, a folk singer. Well, now, a banjo is a difficult instrument to play. Six, I play guitars, and, you know, I'm open yeah. cards and bar chords and stuff like that. I'm yeah. not really good at picking. But a, a banjo, you got to pick every one of those strings. Well, yeah, but I didn't play bluegrass. Now, that's different, you know. Okay. That real fast, fast picking. Okay. I played Pete Seeger style, folk accompaniment style, you know, okay. and, and, and all you do is you buy the Pete Seeger record, or CD now, or DVD called How to Play the Five-String Banjo, okay. and you just listen to it, and at the end of the record, you'll be playing it. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. so now this is, we're talking, let's put a timeline here, so we're talking early 60s, now, right? Been, I went to West Point in 58. Oh, 58, okay. So, 58 and then class of 59 graduated. I would have been class of 62. Okay. But by then, I was in Hawaii for 59, 60, 61, 62. Yeah. So Early 60s. Early yeah. 60s, right. Okay, so this is when we're... Now you're a traveling band. You're with uh, this uh, modern folk quartet. That's your band at the time. Right. Well, I'll tell you. After, well, we left Hawaii after singing there for a while together. We left Hawaii and came to L.A. Okay. And we played at the um, uh, on a hoot nanny night, which is like amateur hoot night. Nanny. At the Troubadour, oh, yeah. Troubadour Club, you know, which yeah. was the big club that everyone went to. And and we played, and, and we, we, we broke into four-part harmony on our first song, and people stood up applauding, you know, and it, we kind of, it was kind of scary, you know, what the heck is happening? They, they had never heard this kind of four-part harmony with the driving beat, you know, and uh, that and that was our fortune right there. You know, we got a record company and a manager and, a, and an agency, kind of all all at the same time. That was good. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about Laurel Canyon because you had mentioned earlier that you lived in Laurel Canyon. Now Laurel Canyon is legendary. I mean, we're talking the Monkees, right. we're talking Zappa, we're talking Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and all the other stories that go that are associated yeah. with it. And uh, so, what was Laurel Canyon like, and why? What was the attraction? Joni Mitchell. What was the attraction there? Yeah, I'll tell you. You know, yeah, Laurel Canyon has become almost like Camelot, right? Right. Yes. This, 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 fascinating kind of, you know, legendary place. Actually, all it is is the hills that separate Hollywood from the valley, what they call the valley. Mm -hmm. So it's the Hollywood Hills. So if you go straight up the hill from Sunset Strip, um, you know, you'll be in Laurel Canyon. And and it's just a bunch of kind of little summer houses on, on on hillsides. And it doesn't look like anything special. I mean, there's curvy, windy roads that are kind of arteries and then are kind of, you know, they end up in little kind of blood vessels. I mean, you go up a big street, you get on a littler street, you turn right on an even tinier street, you end up on a dirt road, you know, and and, it, and, and it's quiet up there. And families don't live there because there's no yards, there's no lawns, there's no sidewalks, so you have kids, you need all that for bicycles and, and, you know, and baby buggies and all kinds of stuff. But So then actors and musicians tend to live up there because they're single. And I mean, one of the, I mean, the first time I, I, when we first came to LA, I remember someone had a, there was a party up in, up in Laurel Canyon. And I went up there and that, that's the first time I heard of it. But all my friends lived up there. Everybody wanted to live up there because it was up in the hills. And in five minutes, you'd be in the country. 
you know, with owls and raccoons and possums and coyotes. And, and it was quiet. It was good for, you know, good for poetic thinking with songwriting, you know. That was Laurel Canyon. And, and, and all of my friends, I mean, Joni Mitchell and uh, well, Mickey Dolan, Mark Bowman from the Turtles, Dan Fogelberg. I mean, all of these people who lived up there, David Crosby. And I, and I sort of knew them from the clubs, from being a fellow musician. This was long before I picked up a camera. This would have been 63, 64. I picked up a camera in 66. So I already knew all of these people when I suddenly had a camera. I, you know, it didn't. I wasn't like some photographer suddenly there in their face. You know, they didn't even notice I had a camera. I think. So, so at this you know, point, at this point, did you have the Nikon already, or were you still shooting that no. little camera you picked up in Michigan at this yeah. little pawn shop, so to speak? No, 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 no. I very quickly got a Pentax. Okay, the Pentax. Okay. So for two or three years, probably, uh, you know, until maybe '69. About three years, I used the Pentaxes until, as I said, they got stolen, and I got turned on to Nikon. Okay, so these were 35-millimeter cameras and yep. with uh, assorted lenses and all that other good stuff. That is correct. Exactly. So, right, so when when was your big break? What was the picture, the shot, that basically says <laughs> that, that when, when the light went off in your mind said, wait a minute, I can do something yeah. with this. When was What was that shot? Who what, Who was it? I'll tell you, it was the Buffalo Springfield. And um, I was walking down the hill in Laurel Canyon one day, and I heard this guitar music coming out of a house. I walked up to the door, and Stephen was there still visiting a friend. And I heard his guitar playing, and, I, and he said, Hey, Henry, we're going down to the beach today to do a sound check at a club in Huntington Beach. You want to come along? And at that point, I was doing these slideshows for my friends, and I said, great, I'd love to, because I wanted to go down to the beach and take some unusual pictures that I could entertain my friends, you know? Always looking for something to get a gasp, you know? Mm -hmm. Whoa, you know, oh, wow, that's beautiful. What a, you know, it's showbiz, showing slides, right? Uh -huh. So I thought, I'll get... I'll get great pictures on the beach, and I did. I got a picture of a guy with a monkey on his shoulder, and the monkey and the man's face looked similar, and I loved that picture. Then I walked back to the club where they were doing their, their sound check, right? Uh -huh. In the afternoon, they were testing their amps and the, and the sound system. There wasn't any light on in there, and, and I never photographed a group on, you know, on stage or anything. So I walked back to the club, and there was a big mural painted on the back of the folk club, and as I was just framing that up, because it was colorful, Buffalo Springfield walked out the back door, and they were standing right in front of it. And I said, hey, you guys, stand there for a minute so I can show how big that mural is. <laughs> and, then, and then they started, you know, throwing shape, you know, and doing stick, you know, and making faces. So I took a roll of film. A week later, a magazine called Teen Set Magazine, that uh, we hear you have a picture of the Buffalo Springfield. I mean, they'd done an interview with them, and they said, oh, yeah, Henry took some. And they said, we'd like to run one, and we'll pay you $100. And I went, oh, my God. I mean, I'd never made a nickel taking a picture. You know? Was $100 so, considered a lot of money back then for a picture? Sure, yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. Since I'd never made you know, any money taking a picture, uh, I just photographed my friends. And stuff that was interesting to me, and then we'd look at them and have fun at a party. You know, that was it for me. Okay, and then uh, after that, what happened? The word got around that you took a picture and it got publicized, and then somebody yeah, else came yeah, to you? Num yeah, a number of things happened. Another magazine wanted me to go shoot photos of the monkeys while they were recording their, their TV show. Okay. And that developed into a two-year job, you know, and... Um, Actually, let's see, before that, uh, I went to New York to photograph the Love and Spoonful because my friend Eric Jacobson was their producer. And, and he told me, he said, Henry, you want to learn to be a photographer? Come and photograph the guys for the summer. We need a lot of pictures. So my first album cover was Hums of the Love and Spoonful. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and then came the Monkeys, and then, then I met an art director one day at, at a Love Inn. 
Sunday afternoon in a park. He saw me taking pictures, and he said, hey, he said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do an album cover for Cass Elliott, Mama Cass. You want to help me take the picture? And I said, sure, because I knew Mama Cass. And that was Gary Burden. And then we made, uh, you know, probably not maybe 100, 150, 100 album covers together. I've probably done two or three, but 100 of the best ones were with Gary Burden. Uh, so, you know, little incidents and accidents that happen along the way, make, you know. When you, you know, because I, I, I uh, film a lot of, or take pictures of a lot of um, automotive racing scenes and stuff, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So I remember a guy told me one time, many, 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 many years ago, I heard the, there's an art to framing a picture. That's the term he used. You know, and then obviously you want to capture just that real natural, and I don't, I guess you could use the word organic, but just a real natural yes. sta- state of what's happening, you know. Just like that one, like I, I saw the album cover or the, the picture of um, Crosby St- or Buffalo Springfield that you did with the with the mural in the back. And that's right. just kind of a real casual thing. It's kind of like the Morrison Hotel when you had the, <laughs> yeah. the doors and they just like zipped in there real quick and you just get really, really, really quick. So are you, yeah. when you, when it's a spontaneous shot like that, you, and like right. of course today we have digital cameras. That's real easy, and and, mm-hmm. and you have to worry about screw ups. But back then, were you concerned with taking a lot of pictures, getting the right shot, or did you just say, "I've got this camera. I'm just going to shoot off as many as I can, and well, whatever get whatever yeah. happens happens." Well, in those days, you had to take a light reading because you had to set the camera. Okay, you know, true. Digital, yes, it's automatic. But so I had a light meter, a spot meter. I would look through it. And, and read the, the cheek, you know, I put the put the little circle as I look through the thing, you know, like a like a like a spyglass or something. I put right. that on the cheek of the person I was photographing, pull the trigger and it would say, you know, one one twenty five at four point six. Then I would set my camera and then I would frame it up, you know, and just keep clicking when the, when people look good, you know, when they look the right direction. I mean, it depends. If it's a group that's posing for you, that's different than than taking, you know, do- documenting when nobody even knows you're doing it. But it's all about looking, and you're right. You said it exactly right. Framing. You know, framing, getting into the main part of what you want to see. You know, you don't... Like, a lot of people take a picture of, of, of their family, and there's, you know, there's five inches of trees and bushes all around them and the little bitty people in the middle, you know. No, you want to walk right in there and get that family from the top to the bottom of the frame, you know. It's it, it just it's concentrating on what you want the people to see. And so it is a kind of a, it's an instinct for me. That's the fun part. I think I have a framing zone. Yeah, well, okay, so basically, I, I, I personally love to catch those spontaneous shots. I mean, it's great to have people pose, but I like to be there when that, when that, when you just, by virtue of luck, you just got yeah. that, you know, that, that perfect shot. And I'll, I'll, one example I have is um, Bill Adams was racing at Sebring, no, at, at Daytona. This is a number of years ago. And he pulled in to switch uh, drivers with uh, right. Hans Stuck. And in the process of getting out, and I just taken pictures of the car coming in. It's late at night. It's like two o'clock in the morning, and I just taken mm-hmm. all the pictures. And just as he and I put my camera down, and just as he got out, the halon system went off, and somehow it just triggered, and and ah. foam went everywhere. That was that money shot, if you will, that I was trying to get, and I just was so mad that I didn't get it. And oh. uh, but that but that's yeah. an example. So for you, yeah. is getting that 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 spontaneous shot. Once in a, that Kodak moment, as we yeah. call it, is that that's right. important to you as well, right? Yeah, it is. You know, get in there on the person's face, get their expression. You know, and by the way, sort of wait till they look good. You know, it, I mean, I look through there and and hold it for a minute, and then when I see them turn a certain way and laugh or something, click, I take it. You know, um, you know. Speaking of cars, okay. I went to I went to the Grand Prix in Mexico City with Mickey Dolan. Oh no, kidding! Back in, I think that was sixty-eight. Okay, sixty-eight. I remember all these famous racing names: Phil, somebody, <laughs> Phil know. Hill, probably, and yeah, Phil it? Hill, yeah. Phil okay, Hill. and probably and Mickey, was, go ahead. Bunch of those guys. 
And Mickey was walking around, and, you know, because he was a monkey, he could walk anywhere he wanted, and I was following along, taking pictures. And, and it was great. And we, we stood there and watched the whole race, and he filmed. And, yeah, that was fun. I, I like to photograph cars and, and trucks. You know, like I said, they fill the frame nicely. Well, now, you, you you mentioned the monkeys, okay, and you did a lot of work with the munchies. Of the monkeys, yeah. okay, Mickey, Peter, Davey, and Mike, um, mm-hmm. which one in particular was, cause, and obviously you filmed the monkey mobile, you know, the Pontiac that George Barris built. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah. the monkeys, which one was the most automotive-oriented? Because you mentioned Mickey went with you to the to the Mexican Grand Prix. What about Mike Nesmith? I understood he was kind of a car guy, too. And he actually took the biggest interest in the monkey mobile, supposedly. That's true. He was kind of a car guy. I don't think Davey really was, or Peter. Uh-huh. Yeah, Mickey Mickey was, to some extent. He had a, a Mercedes he's really proud of. He built a gyrocopter in his garage. Oh, really? You know, he's mechanical. Mickey, yeah. Mickey was, really? Mike, yeah, yeah. But, but Mike liked finer things. He was kind of a, a little more sophisticated guy, you know, a little more into life, uh... But Mickey, Mickey was my, my best friend among the monkeys. I mean, they all were friends. Davey was such a great guy. And Mike, so much fun to hang out with. And, and you know, and, and Peter as well. I mean, what he was quite a yoga-type hippie guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, that, I was sort of that way myself. But Mickey was my neighbor in Laurel Canyon, just down the hill from me. And we kind of became better friends over the years, you know. He's still a real good friend of mine. We go drink margaritas together here in town and talk <laughs> about life. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about Frank Zappa. Did you have any uh, interaction with Frank? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny thing. We were playing in a little club called The Action, uh-huh. our, our folk group, and we played five 45-minute sets a night. And a lot of showbiz people came in. The mamas and papas would come and get up on stage, and we'd play and sing together and yeah, it was really fun. Um, and we had this manager, Herbie Cohen. And one night I walked out to the front of the club, and Frank Zappa was on the sidewalk. I mean, I, I knew who he was, but he wasn't famous. Because this would have been 65. And and he told, and we had a conversation. He said, you know, Henry, one day I'm going to be up there on stage like you guys. And <laughs> a couple of years later, he got our manager, Herbie Cohen, to manage him. Really? And yeah, yeah. So that was kind of fun. Um, I had to drive by his house in Wilkins every day when I went home. His house, and then Joni Mitchell's house, uh, and then Mickey Dolan's house, and then up the hill to my house. Um, so you know, I knew him. I photographed him a little here and there. I mean, I wasn't pals, so I didn't hang out with him a lot. I hung out with, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, the Eagles. The doors. I mean, you know, more, more than Zappa. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, Joni Mitchell because she. Re- in fact, I think I was. I heard something on the radio today. I'm not sure if this is true or not, or how true it is. But apparently, uh, the the Deja Vu album by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young came out right about uh, this period of the month. Okay, back in 1970, I think it was, or maybe it was a little before that. Yeah. And and us, and on that was a lot of was one of the songs that Joni Mitchell wrote, which was Woodstock, and mm. um, and now that song's been covered by countless now, people. Wait, yeah, oh, that was on. Yeah, the, the yeah the second album. The second right. se- yeah. was. Am I am I right on that? Their second album. Their second Deja album. Deja Vu. Right, yeah, right. The Deja, Deja Vu album. Right. right. Yeah. So. Um, Matthew Southern Comfort did a version of that song. They were an English yeah. band, and they did a slower version, oh which yeah. I and and Joni did her acoustic version of Woodstock, and then um, and then see, you know Crosby Stills National Young. Yeah, they did right. a they did a, 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 a an upbeat version of it. But when you spend some time with 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 some of these artists, and we'll use Joni, Joni as an as an example, were you just basically is it was it friendship and photography? Or did you actually interact with them? Any contribution to any of the songs, any of the writing, any of the music, any mm. backing or yeah, anything yeah. like that? Well, you know, not not the music. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not always well. I'm certainly not there when they write these songs, right? right? And I'm not often there in the studio either. You know, it's later. 
that I, that I take their picture, either for the album cover or publicity or whatever. So certainly not a part of the, the music in that way. Although I did play banjo on one America song and a Bob Lynn song and, you know, played clarinet on a Love is Spoonful song and oh. tambourine <laughs> on some monkey songs. You know, okay. but, All right. Good. Yeah. But so, those people, oh, I mean, just just amazing people. You mentioned that song, Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love that, that you mentioned three versions of it. And as you mentioned each version, I could, I could play it in my head for a second, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're all amazing, aren't they? Yes, they are. I, I mean, to hear Stephen sing Woodstock, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But then you hear Joni do it. And, oh, my God, you know, it's even more amazing because now you're getting her own sort of inflections, and she's the one who lived it, and she's singing it. You know, that's amazing. Then well, Matthew Southern Comfort, holy cow, you know, uh, 1970, when that was really playing, I went to England with Stephen Stills. He owned a house over there. And when, I spent five, four months over there in, in, in England photographing Stephen, and that song was the big hit. In fact, I saw them play it in a club in London, and it was on the radio all day. I mean, it was a huge hit. And it's so beautiful, their version as well. I mean, what a great song. Yeah, because Joni's is a very folk, folky yeah. version of it. Yeah. Stephen Stills and Crosby Stills, Nash & Young, and the rest of them, they made it kind of a rock and roll thing. And then Matthews almost made it like a ballad, in a way. And so they, they Exactly. With beautiful, that beautiful steel guitar. Mm-hmm. It's mesmerizing. It I is. Think. It is very mesmerizing. Yeah. Exactly. Well, now, mm-hmm. Henry, Monterey Pop Festival, 1967, Monterey, California. So yeah, you yeah, were there. Yeah. You were the official photographer. So yes, yes. You know why? Why? Because because I knew I knew the mamas and papas. In fact, we had played on TV shows together, our, the Modern Folk Quartet. Okay. That, and the mamas and papas in the early 60s. Um, no, no, middle 60s. But... Um, I knew John really well, and I just saw him one day, and he said, Hey, Henry, we're going to have a big concert up there in Northern California. You want to come and be my photographer? I said, Sure, John, I'd love to. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> well, you had some great bands there. I mean, you had them, obviously. Uh, you had uh, uh, well, Jimmy, the, who? the Who. Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix, Hendrix was there. Eric Burden was there. Yeah. And, uh, and Association, I mean, right? And then what's Janis the, Joplin. Janis Joplin. Yeah. What about the band out of San Jose there? I'm trying to think of a quick Silver Messenger. They were there? Were they? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I missed them. You know, occasionally I'd be backstage. Like, I know at one point I was backstage. What happened to be underneath the stage, down in a basement. Uh-huh. And I was photographing Jimi Hendrix sitting there eating fried chicken. With a bunch <laughs> of friends crowded around, you know? And so I missed the occasional group, you know. I'd be out somewhere, you know, buying a tie-dyed shirt or something, you know. Now, <laughs> speaking of Jimi Hendrix, did you get a chance to sit and talk with him? And what was he like for you, your your relationship with him? Yeah, um, you know, the the one time I ever talked to him, we, we were both high on um, mescaline. Oh. Still a Simon. yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, all right, all right. It, it, it's funny, it happened in New York on the Monkees tour. Because um, he, you know... The Monkees went to London to visit the Beatles, and they saw Jimi Hendrix at a club. They said, wow, he is awesome. Why don't we get him to open for us on our tour this summer? Well, they didn't realize that the little 13-year-old girls would, you know, while he played Foxy Lady, they'd be saying, we want Davy. We yeah. want Davy. <laughs> you know? So it didn't work out. But but I did spend one day uh, hanging out in the hotel with them and Jimi Hendrix, and uh He's very uh, quiet, kind of a real nice guy, you know, almost shy, not shy, but quiet, you know, and, and just really nice, I, you know. Well, now he w- I, often, I often say that there's a reason that all these people become famous for their music, because for the most part, they're amazing people, you know. There's no one else like Joni Mitchell. There's no one else like Jimi Hendrix. They're exceptional, awesome people who have this knack, you know, for, for turning their life in, into poetry, to music, for, for noticing things and passing it along. I, I just think it's fascinating songwriting, singer-songwriters. Well, then, now, 
Henry, we are just about up against the clock, but you know we're going to have to, and I mentioned this to you earlier, I think we're going to have to do part two next week. Are you going to be available for part two next week? Same bat time, same bat station, and we'll pick up where we left off. Are you up for that? Yeah, I'm up for that, Robert. That'll be great. Because, yeah. Yeah, next Tuesday, same time. And uh, because we didn't even get a chance to talk about the Morrison Hotel Gallery, a uh, big shout out to Rich Horowitz, you know, for helping uh, us, you and I get together. And uh, and and I, there's just I have a whole list of stuff, questions, and and so and musicians that you did you interact with, and the stories. The stories are beautiful. That's what people want to hear. Is this, we didn't talk about the Eagles. The, we yeah, talk, yeah. We didn't talk about. Uh, Jackson Brown or Jimmy Webb or you know many many. Oh yeah, have. we have to talk about the Jimmy Webb and the glider accident. We didn't even get to that oh, yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. All right, well next week to be continued. Eh? To be continued. I want to thank my very special okay. guest Henry Dills, legendary photographer and uh, just musician and just all around super guy. Great, honest, genuine stories and i really appreciate that because that's what makes the show about you know when you're telling these stories henry keep in mind my listeners they 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 can visualize this and when you drop these names we all listen to those music we can all identify with those people so i want to thank you very much for that sure i i just say what happened you (laughs) You were there what else could i say that's it that's it All right, Robert. Terrific. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. We will have you here next week for part two. You never know. There might be part three. But anyway, Henry, thank you very much. You take care of it, and uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, next week, we'll pick up where we left off. Thank you very much. All right. Sounds good, Robert. Bye. Thank you. So I want to thank my very special guest, Henry Dills. Amazing stories. We got, I mean, we we only touched the tip of the iceberg. So next week, we're going to continue on. We're going to get into some really serious musicians and some of the fun stuff. And uh, a big shout out to my friend up there, Jim Terry. Jim Terry's music, guitar lessons for old guys. I didn't go today, but I was on the road. But I will pick up and... To, I, will, I will pluck my six string. But in the meantime, don't forget, there's car shows coming up this weekend. Don't forget, you can find us out here every... Find us here every week. Every week. Between 7 and 8 p.m. on the 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network here, downtown Clearwater. Tell your friends. Follow us on social media. Check out GulfstreamMotorsports.com. In the meantime, I want to see you at some of the car shows. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Clearwater. FM 106.1. WDCF Dade City. FM 102.3. WZHR Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.